think most of us are here. I think we're going to go ahead and jump in. More will join as we go. Um, so thank you, everyone, for joining us on this lovely Thursday as we dive into further into uh, Anti-Oedipus right, losing Guattari. Today we're going to be going over Chapter 2, Section 2, the three texts of Freud, uh, which I am mostly going to probably be quiet during because I don't have the background in Freud, but we are excited to have a few people here who have a lot of uh, experience with these different things, especially as we start talking about Lacan, uh, Jung, and Freud, and juxtaposing them. So I'm excited for the discussion. A uh, little bit of housekeeping. Uh, overnight, we changed a few of the things around on the server. Uh, all of you are grandfathered in. Uh, if you've already joined, uh, you get to wander around the server freely. However, thanks to some wonderful trolling as exists on the internet, uh, we have uh, taken to having a lobby before people can join everything we're set up to do. So uh, what you'll find uh, for new people or when you invite someone, they may be slightly confused, but uh, please add admin if you have any questions or if someone is not getting the help they need to join, we should be, uh, we should be helping everyone as they uh, make their way in. So uh, we're excited to uh, get going with all of that. Um, throughout this conversation, I'm going to make a request. Uh, we have two things that we're trying out a little bit differently. One is I really want people to start starring comments inside of the discussion chat. Uh, it is something that we use in our server highlights as we post about this in social media and Reddit uh, to try to attract people. So please uh, star your favorite comments inside of the discussion chat. The second thing is uh, all of you have the ability to unmute yourselves. Uh, at least you should, and you can talk with us by using push to talk. We are going to try a unfiltered, unmoderated system for all of you fucking people to, I don't know, say whatever you're going to say. Uh, so if you have something to say, don't hesitate to unmute yourself, make a comment, and then you'll be able to use push to chat to chat. Uh, I think that's the big ones. Anything else I'm leaving out, Craig? Uh, no, I think you covered the bases there. Awesome. And then uh, the last thing would be um, over this next weekend, we're going to start uh, tossing out our Patreon links because this has become uh, far more time than I think Craig and I were ready to devote to it. So uh, a couple extra bucks will go a long way to helping us defray some server costs and SoundCloud fees. And uh, maybe we can even pay our wonderful new sound engineer, Enzo, uh, who's taken on far more than he fucking should have, uh, spending way more time than he should have, making us sound far better than I can inside of my terrible audio programs. So uh, keep an eye out for that. Um, otherwise, uh, I will now pass it off to Craig, and we will begin the text. All right, three texts of Freud. I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on Freud. I have looked at the, the texts that are described here. Um, to me, the, the, uh, the example that they go back to uh, of Schreber is one that I've looked at more probably than anything else here. And I think in terms of their conceptualization of desiring production and their frequent use of the example of Schreber, um, I think that might be one of the, the important things to, to stick to as we go. One thing that I've tried to do over the past few days, um, I know some of you are really good with Lacan. I I wasn't, but now I have looked at a lot of stuff over the past few days, and I don't know if it's going to help us today, but one of the questions that sort of presides over my reading is to what extent does their criticism of Freud then dovetail with a criticism of Lacan? And also at, at the same time, you know, to what extent does their valorization of Freud 
and his discovery of the unconscious dovetail with their celebration of Lacan's accomplishments in psychoanalysis. So I just wanted to, you know, sort of air that out. Um, I don't, and just reiterate that I don't pretend to be an expert on these other texts that are here, but I think as we go, it's, it's once again, it's easy to get lost in the weeds here uh, with all of the examples that they bring up. And my hope is that I can highlight what I believe are some of the more salient sentences in these paragraphs uh, so that we get a general idea of what they're trying to do with the Oedipus complex. Uh, so with that said, I'm just going to break in to the, the first kind of big paragraph here that starts on page 56 in the text. 79 in the PDF that we're working with, and then it, it spans on over to page 60 there. The three texts of Freud. Uh, and I might stop along the way. So the three texts of Freud. It is easy to see that the problem is, first of all, practical, that it concerns, above all else, the practice of the cure. I mean, right, right here, I just want to stop and say that um, the problematization that occurs under uh, Freudian psychoanalysis also involves the creation of the problem that is the cure. So this is, this is where we're going. For the frenzied Oedipalization process that takes form precisely at the moment when Oedipus has not received its full theoretical formulation as the, quote, nuclear complex, end quote, and leads a marginal existence. The fact that Schreber's analysis was not in vivo detracts nothing from its exemplary value from the point of view of practice. In this text, 1911, Freud encounters the most formidable of questions. How does one dare reduce to the parental theme a delirium so rich, so differentiated, so, quote, end quote, uh, divine, end quote, as the judge judges, since the judge in his memoirs makes only very brief references to the memory of his father? On Can several. I stop you here? Yes, please. All right. Um, judge would be president in French. Oh, per, okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're, they're, oh, you mean the second reference to, I mean, the reference to his name? Uh, yes, but they, they call him president into the text. Interesting. Okay. And what's the, the word for judge? Juge. Mm -hmm. Because it's funny, I think that uh, one variation of the word judge in uh, Portuguese is presidente next to Juiz, so. Okay. okay, interesting. Okay, all right, Let, uh, we'll keep that in mind as we proceed. On several occasions, Freud's text marks the extent to which he felt the difficulty. To begin with, it appears difficult to assign as cause of the malady, even if only an occasional cause, an outburst of homosexual libido directed at Dr. Fleschig's person. But when we replace the doctor with the father, and commission the father to explain the god of delirium, we ourselves have trouble following this ascension. We take liberties that can be justified only by the advantages they afford us in our attempt to understand the delirium. Yet the more Freud states such scruples, the more he thrusts them aside and sweeps them, them away with firm and confident re response. And this response is double. It is not my fault if psychoanalysis attests to the great monotony and encounters uh, and encounters the father everywhere, in Fleshig, in the God, in the Son. It is the fault of sexuality and its stubborn symbolism. Furthermore, it is not surprising that the father returns constantly in current deliriums, in the most hidden and least recognizable guises, 
since he returns, in fact, everywhere and more visibly in religions and ancient myths, which express forces or mechanisms eternally active in the unconscious. It should be noted that Judge Schraber's destiny was not merely that of being sodomized, while still alive, by the rays from heaven, but also that of being posthumously edipalized by Freud. From the enormous political, social, and historical content of Schraber's delirium, not one word is retained, as though the libido did not bother itself with such things. Freud invokes only a se sexual argument, which consists in bringing about the union of sexuality and the familial complex, and a mythological argument, which consists in positing the adequation of the productive force of the unconscious and the edifying forces of myths and religions. Um, so here, we have a general argument, uh, a general concept that's being, beginning to be formulated about, hey, what is edipalization? Well, in this paragraph, it takes for, uh, the form of a reduction to the father everywhere. Um, I will submit that going forward, it's not just about the father. It's about the form. But from what can we extrapolate of the example of this overuse, this, this reduction to the father, um, how can we use that to extrapolate the form of edipalization? This is the one thing that I have my eye on. Um, a few things coming up. Not only fathers, we got myths. We got gods. Um, we're going to have different ways that myths are used. They're going to talk about Freud and Jung, Jung going forward. Um, and the, this kind of pull between profane and sacred. And it's going to be interesting to analyze the details that are um, either eluded or excluded from this reduction to the father. Um, that said, um, I, I want to open up to any other comments that we have just on this introductory paragraph. And may I say, oh, go, yeah, it was at uh, Afshin, right? Yeah, so uh, I'm very I'm very fascinated by the idea that myths are could be construed by in in an Oedipal sense, and in that framework, then defined by their relationship to what we have with them. Mm. Now, having said that, though, by definition, does that mean that myths cannot have a multitudinal like force within them? That even, for instance, like my myths are always the ones that I found through Nietzsche and Camus and those guys. Those, mm -hmm. That's the, the role of myths that I found were through them. So my perspective is always going to be like construed through their uses of myths. At the same time, like I found it to be like I, I'm trying to understand my relationship with myths in, on the first end anyway. But mm -hmm. I don't want to. I don't want to undermine, or at least inhibit, any kind of dishonest viewing of them. And how would you like if there was a scientific method of understanding it without denying any kind of uh, scope that that then narr narrows it too far? Understanding your own relationship, how was that? How is a, a how is it to? How do you define an effective approach at understanding that relationship, basically? Okay. Yeah, I think in your question um, is a question that I have. And I think they approach an answer, or maybe they, they even answer it directly in a few paragraphs. Actually, it's coming in the next paragraph. The question is, is something like a myth in itself uh, inherently predisposed to 
the process of Oedipalization, right? And there's a way in which both Freud and Jung employ myth uh, that in its form is similar, but in its particularity is different. Uh, with Freud, there's a sort of upward or a, um, I would say an as- what, what, like an anagogical reduction or an, a, an ascendant reduction. Uh, I'm sorry, that's with Jung. There's an anagogical or an ascendant reduction, like where we're pushing the notion of, uh, of an individuality or a global person or a global figure in myth, we're pushing upwards towards it, where with Freud, there's kind of a, a profane push, a downward push to a globalized figure in the figure of the father, the sexualized father. And I so, the, yeah. yeah, so so the challenge is like, what is what is it about the way that myth is deployed um, in, in both Freud, Jung, or elsewhere that pushes us into these sort of global contours. There are these globalized contours. This is what I, what I got out of it last night in my reading. And, um, I just wanted to mention before we, we, we get off of this paragraph, I love the word adequation. This is a word that appears in translation in a lot of French texts. And maybe uh, this is what I wanted to ask Roger about. Um, how, how can we understand the definition of that word? Because it comes up again. Paging Roger. Hello. Roger, are you there? Maybe he stepped away. In any case, we can come back to that. Um, I, just, I just like to mention that... Uh, Another way of thinking about this is uh, in terms of the patriarchy. In other words, Oedipalization could be seen as the ideology of the patriarchy and patriarchy being applied to everything within the Western worldview. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely. But could you say more about that? Like, in what ways does does the structure of patriarchy or the dynamics within patriarchy resemble Oedipus? Well, it's just the uh, kind of like the ascendance of the father, but then the father is an empty signifier and the, the eclipse of the mother, but the mother is actually the, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, you know, the embodiment of the other. Right. You know, I mean, there's a lot of ways of reading this whole um, uh, approach that they have in terms of, of Oedipalization, in terms of understanding where we are with respect to the patriarchy, you know, in, in ancient Greece and then coming from uh, Judaism and, and other cultures. Right. And the, the figure of the patriarchy is ultimately inaccessible to us, uh, as is expressed in myth and even in, I would say, the secularized version of patriarchy that we experience under capitalism. There's a way in which the access is blocked, or at least the figure of the patriarch is deployed to block access, to block kinds of difference from achieving certain kinds of power um, in virtue of that figure. But another way of thinking about that is that it's a whole... uh, uh, you know the whole I, excuse me the whole idea is to produce the um, uh, transcendent that's right that's right and and that's what they're going to get at at the very end here the the you you use the word transcendent which is a word that they will use in some places in anti-oedipus and Deleuze uses much more often in like their discussion of Kafka for example uh, but one of the ways that 
like we can actually use the synonym religion, at least in this section here, where they talk about injecting religion into the unconscious or making the unconscious religious. And so this notion of transcendence, this this domain to which access is blocked, but nonetheless conditions the the sphere of production, um, marks transcendence. And and I, I just want to mention that you know in an earlier section they mentioned Jaspers, and Jaspers has a whole philosophy about transcendence. Yes, which I think is an underlying theme here. Andrew, did you want to say something? You you tried to pop in a couple times. Um, perhaps something about myth. I yeah. don't know whether you address this the way I would address it, but um, I see a kind of uh, differential usage. And I'm um, speaking apropos of Afshin's question, which was a way back. Uh, I see a differential usage of the myth between the way, let's say, Camus and uh, Nietzsche use them and the way Freud uses it, right? And uh, here we have a completely conflating views. I think that Freud explains reality through, through myth, right? And uh, Camus, for example, in the myth of Sisyphus, probably more explains the myth through reality, right? He, he tries to make sense of what's going on with Sisyphus through his, uh, or through the uh, experience of man mm -hmm. with the absurd, etc. So, so that's interesting. And uh, maybe going back to chapter one, or, or even the first section of chapter two, I'm not sure, when they visualize a plane and a kind of uh, a kind of triangle descending on it, right, which mm -hmm. is ultimately reducing the the total, you know, area, which is right. uh, which is considered for production, let's say. Right? And I think that this happens when you use myth to, to understand reality. So something essentially idealistic, something essentially, well, let's say transcendent, right? To, to uh, make sense of material production. Yeah, I think a lot of the, the, if we continue into the next paragraph, we're going to see some of this fleshed out. So maybe right. Andrew, if you don't mind. I can do that, yep. Uh, this latter, later. <laughs> This latter argument is very important, and it is not by chance that here Freud declares himself in agreement with Jung. In a certain way, this agreement subsists after this break. If the unconscious is thought to express itself adequately in myths and religions, taking into account, of course, the work of transformation, there are two ways of reading this adequation. They have in common the postulate that measures the unconscious against myth, and that from the start substitutes mere expressive forms for productive formations. The basic question is never asked, asked but cast aside. Why return to myth? Why take it as the model? The supposed adequation can then be interpreted in what is termed anagogical fashion, toward the higher, or inversely, in analytical fashion, toward the lower, relating the myth to the tribes. But since, here, but since the drives are transferred from myth, traced from myth, with the transformation is taken into account. What we mean is that, starting from the same postulate, Jung is led to restore the most diffuse and spiritualized religiosity, whereas Freud is confirmed in his most rigorous atheism. Freud needs to deny the existence of God as much as Jung needs to affirm the essence of the divine in order to interpret the commonly postulated adequation, but to render religion uncomfortable. 
unconscious or the unconscious religious still amounts to injecting something religious into the unconscious. And what would Freudian analysis be without the celebrated guilt feelings ascribed to the unconscious? Wow, I really love this paragraph um, because it's a work of analytical genius, um, I think, because the methodology it employs, it, it, it's basically drawing the comparison between Freud and Jung, um, which positions Jung as basically in, installing a, a higher sense of transcendence. Freud has this profane sense of transcendence, both of which are problematic for conceptualizing desire. And the notion of religion infuses both of them with this sort of staunch atheism on one side and this um, uh, elevation or valorization of divinity on the other side. And the thing that pops out on both ends, I mean, they attribute it mostly to Freud, is this notion of guilt. And so we have the idea of a transcendent figure being that which conditions the field of desire. And what's the operative emotion or the operative affect? The, the feeling of guilt. Um, there might be a way in which that we, this could be more broadly applied to Jung. It's not articulated here. Um, and I'm not going to venture that interpretation on the fly. But I think it's interesting that they, they, they set up this, this correspondence. Um, what's interesting to me is that even though in the past, in the, in the previous chapter, we, I believe, talked a lot about uh, connecting Jung to Deleuze and Natari, especially um, with their notions of intensity and archetypes, etc. And here uh, I see um, a kind of connection between Freud and Jung, right, which wouldn't even be uh, impossible to apply to to the unconscious of Deleuze and Gattari. So here again, Jung is uh, very much different, right, from what they're, what they're trying to accomplish. Right. I think for the Jungian, for example, they see Jung's work as, a, as an advancement of Freud's original conceptions, right? Um, I mean, there is an absolutely positive dimension to thinking about the unconscious in terms of archetypes rather than the negative figure of a father. But what Deleuze and Gattari are doing is like, um, in a way, nope, sorry. These are just inversions of one another. And um, what we're trying to get at is how, how desire becomes separated from, or how it becomes divested from the social field in the figure of transcendence. Um, shall we continue? Um, I'll, do, I'll do the next one. So what came to pass in the history of psychoanalysis? Freud held to his atheism in heroic fashion, but all around him, more and more, they respectfully allowed him to speak. They let the old man speak, ready to prepare behind his back the reconciliation of the churches in psychoanalysis, the moment when the church would train its own psychoanalysts and what it would become possible to write in the history of the movement. So even we are still pious. Let us recall Marx's great declaration. He who denies God does only a secondary thing, for he denies God in order to posit the existence of man, but to put man in God's place, the transformation taken into account. But the person who knows that the place of man is entirely elsewhere does not even allow the possibility of a question to subsist concerning an alien being, a being placed above man in nature. He no longer needs the mediation of myth. 
he no longer needs to go by the way of his mediation, the negation of the, of the existence of God, since he has attained those regions of an auto-production of the unconscious, where the unconscious is no less atheist than orphan, immediately atheist, immediately orphan. And doubtless, an examination of the first argument would lead us to a similar conclusion. By joining sexuality to the familial con- complex, by making Oedipus into the criterion of sexuality in analysis, the test of orthodoxy par excellence, Freud himself posited the whole of social and metaphysical relations as an afterward or a beyond that desire was incapable of investing immediately. He then became rather indifferent to the fact that this beyond derives from the familial complex, though the analytical transformation of desire or is signified by it in an anagogical symbolization. So before we... uh... Yeah, go. Yeah, Andrew, please start out. And jump into the before we jump into the discussion. Even though there isn't any name dropped in the first part of the paragraph, I feel that um, Lacan is on target here, and for the simple reason that um, you know he popularly uh, advocated for the return to Freud, and many of uh, Freud's very peers, you know the. Uh, the first generation of psychoanalysts didn't really adhere to his principles, and you know, even though they uh, they learned a lot from him, many of them went their own separate ways with their own theories, right? And this is where Lacan comes in with his yeah, you know, let's return to Freud. There are certain things which are not uh, as they should be in an analytic community, right? Yeah. Um. The, the thing that stands out to me here in relation to somewhat in relation to what you're talking about is um, is the 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 notice of Marx, uh, where they say he who denies God does only a secondary thing. So it, what they're they're saying and my interpretation of it here is that in lieu of of actually having a God, well, the sort of Feuerbachian to Marxian move is, okay, now with God out of the picture, we still have man over here. But one of the problems with putting man in the place of God is the notion that man is this total um, uh, indivisible figure uh, to which desire can be reduced in, in any sort of way. And so um, it's because of this that Freud is able to make this move to the, this presupposition about the nature of man and the position of man in nature, the, the, that sort of configuration. Um, it, it's because of that that Freud is able to to set up the father in in the uh, in the Oedipal reduction. And um, I think I think what you're saying about Lacan is, is true too, because the, the nature of, of Kant's configure, Lacan's uh, configuration of desire mirrors this about Freud and the attempt to, to restore Freud to his, his former glory or to his, you know, to uh, avoid the, the fact that his, um, his presence and influence in psychoanalysis was waning up until the, of the time of Lacan is just a reinstallation of those tendencies into psychoanalysis. Right, and what's uh, particularly funny to me is that both Lacan and Deleuze are sometimes accused of uh, having the same formulation with reading the philosophers or or with their influences generally. Right, Lacan is accused of wrongly reading Freud, right, of, of reading the famously language in the unconscious, where for Freud, allegedly it was in the preconscious, 
And of course, we have this argument with Deleuze every time that he reads uh, other philosophers, right? Especially with uh, what he says himself, right? Uh, approaching the philosopher from the back and uh, making him say something, uh, essentially. So I here see in this, uh, you know, similarity in tradition a much more, uh, a much bigger similarity in terms of style and in terms of, uh, you know, just generally similarities between thought, which uh, were also which were also brought up by Daniel Smith in, in that essay. Mm -hmm. Oh, which essay are you referring to? The one on uh, Lacan and Deleuze that we uh, yeah. okay. shared. In... That's right. Yeah, and we, we can share that again if people are wondering about that. Um, I think right. as we move on, I think these next two paragraphs are a pair. So, Andrew, if you want to do those. Okay. So, let us consider another text of Freud's. A later one, where Oedipus is already designated as the quote-unquote nuclear complex. Quote, a child is being beaten, unquote. So, so this is the text. The reader cannot escape the impression of a disquieting strangeness. Never was the paternal theme less visible, and yet never was it affirmed with as much passion and resolution. The imperialism of Oedipus is founded here on an absence. After all, of the three supposed phases of the girl's fantasy, the first is such that the father does not yet appear, while in the third, the father no longer appears. That leaves the second, then, where the father shines forth in all his brilliance, quote, clearly without doubt, unquote. But indeed, quote, this second phase has never had a real existence. It is never remembered. It has never succeeded in becoming conscious. It is a construction of analysis, but it is no less a necessity on that account, unquote. What is at issue in this fantasy? Some boys are beaten by someone, the teacher, for example, in the presence of the little girls. We are present from the start at a double Freudian reduction, which is in no way imposed by the fantasy, but is required by Freud in the manner of a presupposition. On the one hand, Freud wants to deliberately reduce the group character of the fantasy to a purely individual dimension. The beaten children must, in a way, be the ego quote, substitutes for the second himself, and, uh, unquote, and the one who does the beating must be the father, quote, father substitute, unquote. On the other hand, it is necessary for the variations of the fantasy to be organized in, in disjunctions, whose use must be strictly exclusive. Hence, there will be a girl series and a boy series, but the symmetrical, the female fantasy having three faces, the last which is, quote, boys are being beaten by the teacher, while the male fantasy has only two, the last of which is, quote, my mother beats me, unquote. The only common phase, the second for the girls and the first for the boys, affirms without doubt the prevalence of the father in both cases. But this is the famous non-existent phase. Yeah. And so it's at this time, I have to admit, um, my familiarity with this case is actually very limited. Um, maybe, Andrew, do, do you know more about it? Or maybe somebody else can say something about the case before I, I say my bit. I, I mean, the one thing that just stands out to me, the thing that's useful here, and the thing that is repeated in other parts of, of Deleuze and Gattari's work namely in A Thousand Plateaus, namely in the, the essay One or Several Wolves, is th this notion of a dual reduction that, that, that occurs. So in, in any unconscious content that was encountered by Freud, uh, if there were, was a dream image, uh, for example, in which um, 
many wolves appeared or many girls appeared. Freud's tendency was to take that multiplicity of figures and reduce it to the individual figure. And from there, perform the second reduction, which was a reduction to the global figure of the father. Um, In fact, yeah, in fact, the split between Freud and Jung occurred. uh, One one of the ways that that split has been marked is this dispute about the way that uh, Jung had interpreted a dream about seeing skulls. And then when he communicated with Freud about this dream, Freud reduced the image of a multiplicity of skulls to one skull. And although it seems like a, a sort of pedantic argument that uh, the apprentice has with his master, it's, it's very important to understanding how, the, how Freud's metaphysics um, are, are construed. Um, basically, the, the reduction to the individual is, is made possible through a reduction of the group to, or, I'm sorry, a reduction to the fa- father is made possible first by a reduction of groups to the individual. Right, and maybe I could comment on the the essay itself, A Child is Being Beaten. Oh, somebody so, else um, tried to chime in. I, right. I, was that Afshin? I heard that as well. Yeah, yeah. I was I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to grasp the di- like the that that diversion, that moment of departure between Jung and Freud again. Mm-hmm. So uh to understand the, the forces of how one relates to the the myth. Jung is saying, "I'm not. I'm, I, I didn't follow. I'm, I'm, I follow the way Freud did it because he's just re- reducing it from one to the next." Did, what did Freud, what did Jung do to to distinguish himself from that process? Um, I I don't have. Um, yeah, I I don't know. I don't know. I mean, that's just the example that that's highlighted. In fact, um, I mean, Jung, in his own way, might be guilty of 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 that on other counts. I mean, uh, I mean, any one of the archetypes seems is reducible to. I mean, the archetypes are articulated in terms of specific figures. Um, here, here are some: the witch, the trickster, right? I mean, those are those are individuals. One of the things that Deleuze and Gattari are looking at is, hey, if you have a group of stuff in any kind of unconscious content, like let's say a swarm of flies, for example, or a pack of wolves, why is it that we immediately go to the individual wolf or the individual fly? Maybe there's a way in which um, sidestepping the presentation of a multiplicity is uh, uh, sort of in, invigorating this presupposition about individuals in general, about the image of thought. I, I mean, I, it takes me back to conversations that I had with with folks in my grad program. There is this one um, guy that I knew. He was a, a fundamentalist Christian, and he wanted to suggest that First of all, I mean, very anti-Delusian. In fact, he railed against Deleuze, saying that, hey, common sense is basically the, the, the fundamental way in which we should approach philosophy. He's like, when I look at the world, it's obvious to me. Individuals exist. I see them. Therefore, they should be presupposed as these metaphysical objects, you know, making a reduction to the individual. And often I think of the, the, this argument that's out there, like here's the sort of ANCAP versus um, uh, feminist argument. Um, you know, you see the little, the, the feminist ball out, the, you know, the, like the ANCAP ball and all those. And the feminist says, well, you're oppressing the minority. Um, 
you know, when you oppress feminists. And then the ANCAP ball is, well, the individual is is the greatest minority out there, you know, a la Jordan Peterson. But I think what um, Deleuze and Guattari's response would be is actually the multiplicity is the greatest minority that's out there. In fact, all of the components of desiring production, the field of the multiple as the one, the, the varying intensities that sort of connect and slide along each other, those are the greatest of minorities that exist meta- metaphysically. And so there's no reason in the Freudian image of thought that we should immediately go to the individual. And the problem, as they suggest, is that the reduction to the father happens in virtue of this reduction to the individual. And uh, maybe I could comment on how I see this uh, dichotomy between how Freud and Jung see the religion and how they employ it in different ways. I see this as, um, you know, the famous way Spinoza and Descartes differed, right? Because Descartes uh, goes from one observation which he deems true and, and he deems obsolete, and then goes further. While Spinoza always starts with, you know, his uh, his uh, suppositions, and then uh, d- deploys his, uh, you know, his theory further. So what happens with Freud and Jung, as uh, Craig said, you know, Freud, as Ashim said, Freud, you know, reduces everything from his theory while Jung takes a simple observation and goes further and further, creating these uh, numerous, numerous, and even uncountable multiplicities, right? Which uh, inevitably, which inevitably fill up his theory, right? With all the myths and all the archetypes, et cetera, et cetera. I'd like to just mention something, which is that, uh, you know, uh, archetypes are, basically a generalization of the idea of the complex uh, in Freud. And, and one way of thinking about it is that, um, uh, you know, like, like the archetype, archetypal father is all father. The archetypal mother is all mothers. And so, and so uh, there's this very interesting thing, which is that um, if you take for instance, pictures of women, and you superimpose them, the more that you superimpose them, the more beautiful the image becomes. And so that suggests that the beautiful thing is the most average, which is something we don't, our culture is, uh, you know, we believe that, that beauty is something special, not average. But, but this idea of the averageness uh, is built into this concept of the uh, the archetype. In other words, the average father is like the sum of all fathers. And so like everyone has a father. And so whatever your father was like, you have to deal with the fact that you had a father, even if he was missing. So anyway, I just wanted to kind of mention what the, and, and and so you can see that in the term archetype, it's, you know, uh, the multiplicity is there in the archetype. Mm -hmm. Right. I think that's a great example that you brought up. And one of the ways that we can connect that back to Deleuze is actually through Joseph Campbell and the notion of a monomyth. And so if if we presuppose archetypes as occupying the substrate of the unconscious and we identify any number of them, like let's say we just take a thousand dreams and we identify a thousand figures of witches or a thousand figures of tricksters from these dreams and like you said superimpose them on one another 
we can extrap extrapolate from their generalities the general figure of the trickster or the witch. And it is by that we know the nature of an archetype. And I think methodologically there's a problem there because it presupposes a global figure of an archetype. And I, I think the particularities are the distinctions made at the level of archetype. So, for example, between uh, the 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 mother and the bad mother and the witch and the trickster and, and those kinds of things. I think what's most interesting are the the differences, the the cuts that have been made by Jung. Um, and once again, right now I'm kind of improvising. I'm not prepared to explain exactly um, why that. Uh, or how um, those those differences tell us something about Jung's metaphysics or metametaphysics, but um, I think it's important nonetheless. You know, like 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 Kent was saying, like we can't extrapolate an idea of woman in, in Deleuze's image of thought by just layering every woman on top of each other and then saying, okay, here's the general form. That's exactly what he's against. I'd just like to mention, when we talk about the monomyth, this book by Gao called Oedipus, the Philosopher. Uh -huh. and, and in that book, Gao uh, talks about the monomyth of the hero and, and tries to show that the Oedipus myth is an exception or anomaly to that more general myth of the, the, the monomyth of the hero. And so I think this is a good thing to read alongside of anti-Oedipus because it gives you a, a kind of more general uh, view of the relationship of Oedipus to other myths. Um, in, interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely all for that. That's, that's my speed right there. Um, anybody else? I mean, we, we've had uh, Kent, myself, Ashin and Andrew talk. Uh, is there anybody else who wants to get in at this point? Feel free to uh, push to talk. We've opened it up to everybody if there's a question at this time. Or feel free to interrupt us as we continue to read. Are, uh, so, Andrew, are we on the paragraph such is? Always the case. Right, but, I, but I didn't think that we uh, went over the a child is being beaten fantasies. Okay. Do, do you want to say something about that? that? I mean, um, since you said that you're not familiar, and maybe for some other people who are not familiar in the chats, so that these are a set of fantasies which, according to Freud, uh, occur in, in a lot of children, right? And they are the principal way that con that the connection is made between suffering, right, and enjoying. Mm -hmm. And uh, in this, uh, in these fantasies, of course, these protagonists change. There are different, as we've seen from the paragraph, there are different phases to it. Uh, but one of the main points is how sexual arousal passes from face to face, right? And uh, how this kind of sadistic and, in a way, masochistic, right? If we're talking about one stage, uh, this masochistic and sadistic fantasies interchange with one another, right? And, right, and how they uh, progress. So we have in one corner, my father's being the child whom I hate. And this is the sadistic fantasy of the second being, and which we've seen in the text, I'm being beaten by my father, right? Which, in which this uh, sadistic fantasy from the pre previous phase 
moves towards a more masochistic side, right? And the third phase for the girls is this uh, subject onlooker looking at some uh, other subjects being beaten by a teacher, but uh, definitely not a father as uh, or a uh, you know a paternal figure for that matter. Yeah, and I, I guess the question I. This is sort of a rhetorical question because I, I think I know the answer. What's the problem with interpreting it the way that that Freud does? I mean, these particular distinctions. What does it leave out? Uh, I think that we will see this later. Yeah. But, okay. Uh, yeah. Right. Does it? I mean, don't they touch upon this when they say that the biggest problem that Freud Freud, Freud leaves out here is the problem of collective fantasy? Yes. How, Everything is reduced to the ego of the onlooker or, or, or the subject who is being beaten and right. uh, then seen as a kind of either sadistic, as I said, or masochistic fantasy, which uh, from the point of view of the collective desire, which uh, D&G termed to be the only desire, is uh, purely non-existent, right? And this has uh, political implications. Um you know, uh, for the 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 enterprise of psychoanalysis, um, and for the psychoanalytic subject as they operate in society. So, I, I'd like to mention something which is, um, you know, I think significant, which is that um, in in ancient Greece uh, there were separate initiation ceremonies for boys and girls. And Artemis was the initiator of the girls, and um, Apollo was the initiator of the boys. And uh, Apollo was a wolf god, and um, uh, and so and so the whole the whole thing in uh, the initiation of the boys was about how do you protect the city, because. The uh, and this is the main theme in Plato's Republic is who guards the guards. In other words, how do you raise someone so that they are brutal in war and will protect the city with everything they've got, um, and like Nestor did in the Trojan in in the Iliad, versus uh, being cruel within the city. You know, they they want the they want them to be cruel to the outsider, but but loving to the uh, person within the city, and so and so that that sets up a, a a specific dynamic that the initiation ceremony was uh, created for. To uh, basically what we do in the army, they wanted to fuse the uh, the boys into packs like packs of wolves. So that they they operated as a team to uh, to protect the city. That's funny. And uh, later in the the chapter, I think they reference a certain Colonel Patton, right, who who deems these soldiers and boys. And since you mentioned the army, who deems them loving, who deems them you know compassionate and compassionate, etc. But they're goddamn good killers at the end. Yeah, yeah. So I, yeah, I picked up on that, and I, I think that this is kind of where this theme. This is an underlying theme. I mean, they're talking about uh, boys and girls fantasies as perversely understood by Freud by sexualizing uh, the, the children, 
but 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 there's something in 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 the Indo-European worldview which is analogous, which is the separate initiation ceremonies of the boys and the girls. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, it could be said that the what's happening at the macro level in the in the training of boys. Uh, you know, in through the figure of of Apollo, as you mentioned, is is happening inside the 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 analytic the psychoanalytic office too, to the individual. Uh, yeah, to the extent to, to the extent that that's individuation that's happening. Right. That that brings up a good point. I feel like reading this has been a strictly a genealogical understanding. And I feel like the way the thing, the point that Kent is making is something that is very fascinating to me, but I haven't seen it borne out yet because the way, the way the lose is breaking down Freud's analysis of that Oedipal complex is purely to me, at least so far, maybe I'm wrong here. It's purely genealogical. It's purely seeing it in a sense of, okay, so what are, what are the reactionary forces being borne out from holding within oneself that construct of the Oedipal. And for me to say that there is going on would be a limiting of the scope of the individuation process in the first place. So, so what I'm trying to like, that's like, that comes, that comes back to my original question from the start, because I'm unconscious of my relationship with the, with myths that I find myself fascinated by. And I feel like Deleuze is touching upon something implicitly. He has, I, I haven't been able to actually articulate the process he's going about doing this, but I feel like there's a, there's a strong parallel with the way Foucault understands power structures and the way he goes about explic, explicating them in the way that Deleuze does with Freud's analysis of psychoanalysis. But what, what, where is that point of departure, though? I haven't found if that makes sense. I, I'm trying to gain an insight into how Deleuze says where we are supposed, where we are limited in is where we are to find our point of departure from the complex. That makes sense. Could you just say that again? The, just, so, the, just the last sentence. <laughs> what I'm <laughs> I'm sorry. I, 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 the, the, the thought that I have is, so when, when Deleuze is touching upon, you're, you're breaking I, up. That's why I'm asking. Oh well, I don't know if, if you, if someone heard me better than the, 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 the Deleuze ends up with the, the understanding of Freud's analysis in a sense of a genealogical method, right? He's just touching upon the reactioning forces that then expose the limitation of the scope of the Oedipal complex, right? So when we reach that end point, that, that then describes the limitation of that specific individuation process because with the way Craig has been describing this, there is what is seen as the multi- multiplicity of the whole, whole systematic forces involved as well. But when it comes to departing from the Oedipal complex, though, that and that is, it, I feel like the individuation process as well, right? 
Yeah, I think maybe just to pull back the lens for a moment, you know, looking at the beginning of chapter one, uh, the problem that Deleuze and Gattari are confronting uh, is this image of thought, and especially as it relates to what the way that we've conceptualized desire. And Freud has committed some of the fundamental errors, um, especially in terms of the way that he's imported myth into psychoanalysis as a way to conceptualize that desire. And the, and the kinds of exclusions that occur happen in virtue of the error that attends to this presupposition about the individual nature of fantasy, right? And Deleuze and Gattari, like Andrew said, are saying that all fantasies are collective in nature, and that when this reduction occurs, you have these forms of, of individuation that basically condense upon forms of repression in society. And this is what, what Ken has brought up with the way that, that boys were trained and girls were trained in, in ancient Greece. And then, you know, going to the patent example later, um, like they just want to draw our attention to like, look, look at the way that we've, um, that we're analyzing these dynamics in these sort of repressive institutions in society and, and some violent ones, some explicitly violent institutions as well. And look how our analysis of these institutions mirrors this misunderstanding of, of desire that we've identified. Shall we continue? Yes, please. Okay, I'll do the uh, next paragraph. Page, uh, what are we on? Page 59. Such is always the case with Freud. Something common to the two sexes is required, but something that will be lacking in both, and that will distribute the lack into two non-symmetrical series, establishing the exclusive use of the disjunctions, you are a girl or boy. Such is the case with Oedipus and its resolution, different in boys and in girls. Such is the case with castration and its relationship to Oedipus in both instances. Castration is at once the common lot, that is, the prevalent and transcendent phallus, and the exclusive distribution that presents itself in girls as desires for the penis, and in boys as fear of losing it or refusal of the passive attitude. This is something common that, that must lay the foundation for the exclusive use of the disjunctions of the unconscious and teach, teach us resignation. Resignation to Oedipus, to castration. For girls, renunciation of their desire for the penis. For boys, renunciation of the male protest. In short, assumption of one sex. This something in common, the great phallus, the lack with two non-superimposable sides, is purely mythical. It is like the one in negative theology. It introduces lack into desire and causes exclusive series to emanate, to which it attributes a goal, an origin, and a path of resignation. And uh, wow, this paragraph right here is just so important to all of the points that everyone who's spoken so far has brought up. I mean, it connects directly to Andrew, connects to Ken, myself, and your question, Afshin. And also, I, just how important is this paragraph, not only for attacking uh, myth and religion and transcendent signification, uh, it's a super important paragraph for feminists, uh, for gender theorists. Uh, and maybe we can have some other people uh, mention their connections or what they found exciting. You know, this is a great time for you guys to unmute if you have a question. Um, other, 
otherwise, I'll, I'll just turn it over to to Andrew Kent and anybody else who'd like to speak. All right. Now, what I see in this paragraph is a strict formulation of what, what was insinuated in the previous two, right? What we see in psychoanalysis, and I uh, didn't want to bring it up before because I knew it was coming in this, uh, you know, concrete fashion. What psychoanalysis does best is unearth some of the memories which are supposedly repressed, right, and makes them makes a comeback of them. Which uh, is essential to its development, to the development of the psychoanalysis, right? To the analysis itself, and, and such is the always, such is always the case with Freud, as they say, right? So something, something which was repressed and oddly convenient, you know, comes back in, in a way that it makes the whole analysis make sense, right? Mm. It, it puts uh, I... everything into place. Um, we have um, some we have some questions coming through the chat, um, and oh, yeah. yeah, I see normal Noah saying, "What is the one?" That's that's really important. But actually, before I hit that, uh, I, Andrew, I want to ask you: In what ways is Lacan's uh, conceptualization of the phallus uh, the same or different as what they're attacking here uh, in Freud's conception of it? How does it relate uh, to the Freud's conception of the phallus, as I think uh, Brooks very well pointed out in one of our previous discussions when we centered on Lacan? Uh, for Freud, the phallus is uh, very much a physical object. Mm -hmm. For Lacan, this doesn't occur as much, and probably one of the most interesting, one of the most important points about the Lacanian phallus is that it is purely, I wouldn't say purely, but 99% symbolic. It's not referring to the penis as in Freud, but is referring to this, uh, you know, omnipotent, uh, omnipotent signifier, which can be used and which Lacan himself uses in many, many, many different implications throughout his career. Mm -hmm. um, I want to connect the the notion of the one to the notion of the phallus, especially as it relates to Lacan's con concept of the phallus. So the phallus here is a transcendent signifier, as some people in the chat are, are pointing out. It gets elevated to the transcendent level, taken out of the sphere, the imminent sphere of production. And it's used to condition a very specific, two very specific streams of production, boys and girls. And here's how it does it, right? Boys have this fear of being castrated or uh, acting passively. And on the other side, there is, for women, uh, there's a desire for the penis in the form of penis envy. Now, in Lacan, this takes a more general form. Uh, but rather than talk about Lacan, I'm going to talk about Plato right now, because this notion of the one with a capital O dura uh, relates pretty directly to um, Deleuze's essay, Plato and the Simulacrum, and Plato's notion of the great chain of being. Let's take the concept or form of man as it's conceptualized in Plato. So the idea of a man in Plato has this platonic form that exists in platonic heaven that conditions all other forms of men that exist on earth here, right? So even the greatest man on earth, those who approximate the platonic form of, of man in, in Deleuze's conception of, in Deleuze's uh, work, reworking of Plato, uh, is fall short of of being like that man 
right? And beneath the greatest example or the greatest representative of man that we have here on planet Earth are all kinds of uh, lesser approximations. So there's basically a spectrum that that goes right up to this transcendent form. But unfortunately, even the, the greatest of instantiations of that form falls far short of the form. And in this way, the phallus does the same thing. By being taken out of the imminent sphere of production and put in the realm of the transcendent, it has this ability to condition every, um, basically all hierarchies of that chain of man in in Plato, of girl and boy uh, in the Freudian conception. And it does so uh, by imposing upon them guilt. You will never be like the one in Plato. You will never achieve the phallus the way that you want to achieve it in Freud's conception. You will never, you will never have access to the symbol um, as it's conceptualized in Lacan. And maybe we have, yeah, I feel that this is a very, very uh, strong reading, you know, connecting all of these things. Yeah, and the, it's quick. The, it's one, the one as omnipotent, we've also seen in class trades essay, you know, society against the state. That's right. How the society, you know, the stateless society, which we deem stateless, you know, because of our ethnocentric misconceptions and all of this, you know, they violently oppose the one. Mm-hmm. And uh, just uh, while I'm speaking, we have another question from Normal Noah. They say, so would the phallus for Lacan be the object with the A? Uh, this is a tough question. But I would say not exactly, even though the phallus can take the the same position as the object A in the three plus one uh, in the three plus one conception we've seen in section one of chapter two. So, so what happens and why the phallus is so you know important and so powerful as we will see on the page I, I believe it is seventy three of Antiedipus is that the phallus can be this one in three plus one and make endless you know uh, triangularizations in the in the unconscious but this uh, no yeah, it, one it's, it's it's a bit of a question of like asking is a square a rectangle i mean the answer is sort of right right um it's, but it, it's it's, it's a, a tough it's a really tough question because with the con because the phallus itself is ultimately only a signifier like that's that's we're not talking about anything that exists in in the real the phallus is not something that exists in the real a penis is it's the, the like directly but even that isn't even in in the real it's very much in the imaginary so it could be the object pta but that would be a very specific psychological case and it's for me this section uh, a lot of this chapter i find very difficult because i don't know a lot about freud but but, uh, yeah. uh, could I could I just mention something along those lines, which is that uh, th- there's actually three anamorphic objects, which are the you know the the phallus is one of them, and then the object petite a is another one, and then the little piece of the real. This is c- according to Zizek, and uh, and they 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 all kind of subs- can substitute for each other. They're kind of like neutrinos, you know, uh, neutrinos as they're traveling across the. Uh, the universe, they, they keep morphing into each other. And so the, these, uh, these anamorphic objects are a little bit like that. 
Well, so for me, the the line in this chapter that uh, this paragraph that sticks for me really well, and it's the one I personally focused on, and maybe it's uh, for various reasons, is that it literally the last line where it talks about how uh, um, with the lack uh, and all these things ultimately creates a place where we have an origin, a direction, and an ending, a goal. Uh, how do they phrase it? A goal and origin and path of resignation. To me, that is their ultimate critique of Freud and where I think Lacan also talked a little bit about that there is not ultimately with anything a very written path and starting point, that there is no central sort of direction and obvious everything as well as a goal that Freud has very baked into everything he talks about. Everything he talks about yeah. is almost like, here, this is this is mathematical. A rock is going to roll down this hill. Here's the physics of it. You're done. Whereas this they're saying, no, no, they're, they're like, no, no, there is there's no way to determine that these things themselves exist as signifiers, as elements, but they don't all have the same origin. They don't all have a required goal and they certainly don't have a similar path. Mm -hmm. um, and they talk the about biggest, that later yeah. on. Sorry, go ahead. One of the biggest um, changes Lacan brings to Freud, right, with, with the whole project of structural linguistics, right, the, the barred subject, actually, the subject which always goes from the decentered center, uh, right, the, the bar between the signifier and the signified, all of this goes to further subjectivize the, the Freudian conception. Because uh, Lacan always talks about this uh, subjectivity, ultimately, and uh, not the subject. I think it's important to point out, uh, Brooks, I'm glad you brought up the last line, because this uh, the last sentence gives us an indication as to where we're going with the rest of this text. And it's the key word for me is emanate. Um, and this word should be used in association with uh, the body without organs. I think it's connected to their their notion of miraculating too. Anything that is conferred a special kind of power by which it can emanate um, the necess its necessity in terms of uh, conditioning or or being a central component in the edifice of any production of operation. And it emanates its power outward in virtue of instituting a lack is is exactly what we're going to rail against. This is what capitalism does, right? By you know through the 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 creation and proliferation of the body of capital, it creates lack in certain sectors of the capitalist milieu, but it does so by um, conferring upon capital continually conferring upon capital its own power. And capital in and of itself doesn't produce anything. The one doesn't produce anything. It's just conditioning all production. How? By instituting that lack. And so that's, I think, what they want us to keep our eye on is like, how can we extrapolate from all of these movements, like from the thing that Ken said, like what's happening in Greek society, what, what, what's happening with General Patton, although we're not there yet. How can we use this as, a, as an ability as a, as to import it into our methodology? Um, to to liberate desire. Yeah, I, I just like to mention that the the you know the fallacy's transcendental signifier. You know, the idea is that it produces the signifying chains. That's right. Yeah, and then and then those signifying chains they're emanating 
from this transcendental, just like in Plotinus, that's a, a philosophy of emanation from the one. Right. So when you're growing up in the nuclear family and you learn to uh, be a good boy because um, you're supposed to be a good boy for daddy, and then this figure of daddy then appears in your boss, it appears in the police and everywhere else, it basically primes you to uh, subordinate yourself to their modes of discipline, uh, whether it be in the workplace or whether it be in the society that says you can't do this, that, the other thing, you can't be this person, that person, you can't express yourself in this way or that way. Um, daddy just appears everywhere magically. How'd that happen? Well, then it, it manifests itself in fear of the father, you know. That's right. Yeah. And so there's a chain between your real father, the imagined father, and then the, the, uh, your real father and the imagined father and all of the other desires that you have. So if you have trouble with your boss and then that, that, uh, that sort of series is reduced to the figure of the father, it gets co-opted by that signifying chain and everything just goes right back to Oedipus. Uh, touching on um, Plotinus, it, it's also worth noting that not only do uh, all the second order and third order parts of reality emanate from the one, uh, w which is sometimes called procession, there is also a sense of return where all those things strive to return to the one. And this very closely resembles, again, the, the desire for that transcendent thing. Absolutely. Yeah, there's so many ways to kind of work this with all the figures that we have. We have Freud, we have Plato bringing Plotinus in. I mean, this is endemic to the history of Western thought. And then the idea is that, uh, so you have this desire, you're trying to get back to the one, but when you get back there, there's nothing there. That's right. Yeah, that's the important thing. All right. Then maybe we continue now? Sure. Right. Um, Go ahead, Andrew. Right, where are we at? Um, uh, the uh, the contrary should be. Right. And the contrary should be said. Neither, neither is there anything in common between the two sexes, nor do they have, no, sorry, nor do they cease communicating with each other in a transverse mode where each subject possesses both of them, but with the two of them partitioned off, partitioned off, and where each subject communicates with one sex or the other in another subject. Such is the law of partial objects. Nothing is lacking, nothing can be defined as a lack, nor are the disjunctions in the unconscious ever exclusive, but rather the object of a properly inclusive use that we must analyze. Freud had a concept at his disposal for stating the contra this contrary notion, the concept of bisexuality, and it was not by chance that he was never able or never wanted to give the this concept the analytical position and extension it, it required. Without even going that far, a, li a lively controversy developed when certain analysts following Me Melanie Klein tried to define the unconscious forces of the female sexual organ by positive characteristics in terms of partial objects and flows. This slight shift, which did not suppress mythical castration that made it depend secondarily on the organ instead of the organs depending on it, met with great opposition from Freud. He maintained that the organ from the viewpoint of the unconscious, could not be understood except by pr proceeding from a lack or a primal deprivation, and not the opposite. Huh. 
So I'd just like to mention um, Aristophanes' speech in the symposium in, in the symposium of Plato, where the um, the male and female beings were like glued together, um, mm -hmm. and and then they become unglued, and then they're always just searching for each other, the the wholeness that they have uh, lost. Right. And what's interesting to me here, and we will see this um, later on, how each um, each uh, trial of changing the very rigid conception of the partial objects, which between themselves did not have any connection, according to Freud, or any uh, flow, as the and Atari would call it, met with, uh, with very, very um, violent opposition from him. And we will see, I believe later on, why why this was so important to maintain, why this uh, non-relational uh, non-relational relation between the partial objects was required, right? And how through this, well, you know, we will get to it. Maybe, I just want to, right? I just want to comment on that uh, concept of bisexuality, which. Uh, if I understand correctly, for Freud is not referring to like a sexual orientation as we would understand it today, but is rather more of a constitutive bisexuality. That is, the libido in the first instance does is not does not um, in, begin with an object choice. Rather, one desires and makes an object choice. Um, and and Freud has said that uh, everyone has in fact made a homosexual object choice, at least in the unconscious. So that's kind of this constitutive bisexuality, where the libido in its the the id in its base state is kind of not differentiating one sex from the other, um, mm -hmm. which uh, Deleuze and Guattari would I, I think aptly describe as an inclusive disjunction, or perhaps even the lack of any disjunction. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's right, Mal. Um, I think that there is though. The, they did mention that there is an exclusive disjunction that is performed at the level of the two series that it creates. But I think you're right. Um, at the at the more base level, there is a, a homosexuality at, at work. Mm. A, a homosexuality, which is kind of like not even homosexuality, right? Because at the level of the connective synthesis, that of, that of libido, you're not connecting with whole person. That's right. Right, and I think that um, the following paragraphs would really elucidate what I was trying to say about the partial objects. So maybe we can continue with this. Sure. Are we are we at the here we have? Right. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> here we have a properly analytical fallacy, which will be found again to a considerable degree in the theory of the signifier, that consists in passing from the detachable partial object to the position of a complete object as the thing detached. Phallus. This passage implies a subject defined as a fixed ego of one sex or the other who necessarily experiences as a lack his subordination to the tyrannical complete object. This is perhaps no longer the case when the partial object is posited for itself on the body without organs, with as its sole subject, not an, quote, ego, end quote, but the drive that forms the desiring machine along with it and that enters into relationships of connection, disjunction, and conjunction with other partial objects, 
at the core of the corresponding multiplicity whose every element can only be defined positively. We must speak of, quote, castration, end quote, in the same way we speak of edibilization, whose crowning moment it is. Castration designates the operation by which psychoanalysis castrates the unconscious, injects castration into the unconscious. Castration as a practical operation on the unconscious is achieved when the thousand breaks flows of desiring machines, all positive, all productive, are projected into the same mythical space, the unary stroke of the signifier. And then there was silence. Um, right. So uh, this paragraph here, we're... Once again, I think the, the last sentence is where I want to begin. <clears throat> and, and there's also a question here, too, that I'll direct towards Andrew. Castration as a practical operation on the unconscious is achieved when the thousand breaks flows of the desiring machines, all positive, all productive, are projected into the same mythical space. So it is by the elevation of the signifier um, that, that does perform this act of castration in virtue of the phallus being made transcendent. Uh, and pro projects the illusion that somehow production uh, is not entirely positive. So by the installation of the, phall the phallus as the transcendent signifier, oh, now we have lack, and the notion of lack is, is too elevated and makes it seem as if lack is what produces everything. Um, is there a way in which... Uh, there's overlap here between Freud and Lacan and their notion of castration. Um, if you're asking me, yeah, I would I would say that. that I mean, uh, I'm not sure whether there's an overlap to which Dusenatari offers space in, in this paragraph, but there's um, a much bigger overlap than let's say Freud and Lacan on the topic of edipalization. You know, but uh, what was interesting to me is the but I blanked out while you were reading. And I'm trying to to come back and read the whole paragraph again. What was interesting to me is the way again the partial objects, right? Which, uh, as I read in the language of psychoanalysis, numerous times, for Melanie Klein later go on and become something bigger, right? And uh, you know, as they say here. Uh, become full detached object, which uh, with this, uh, you know, whole, with this, uh, with them being full, you know, carry a, a kind of full signification with them. Uh, what is interesting to me, and what I'm trying to say, is that this doesn't happen with the Zakatari, right? They, rather, they carry these detachable part objects. They uh, produce, the, the desiring production produces with them and then detaches them in order to go to a certain other part object. So, so there is this, you know, flow I was trying to emphasize all this time, right, which doesn't exist with Freud. And, uh, yeah, so, so the continuation is once again key and not just kind, not some, uh, you know, quasi-finiteness, which yeah. may appear with Freud. The thing that interests... Oh, go ahead, Ken. You, well, you I just want, wanted to point out that, you know, in this paragraph, they've kind of encapsulated their whole theory, going from partial objects to body without organs, to the drives, mm -hmm. to the desiring machines, to the multiple, to the positivity. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, it's a nice summary of the of the of the entire theory. That yeah, that's that's a good notice. Um, for me, I, the the interesting comparison that I want to make is uh, between the what happens in the great chain of being with Plato, and then what happens over here with psychoanalysis. So, in the Platonic formulation, you have the Platonic form of of man once again, to which all real living men are subordinated. But in the Platonic formulation, the the idea of man is a complete and global object in in Platonic heaven. But in psychoanalysis, it's the partial object, the phallus, this lost object, which then conditions and creates the the idea of global persons and egos and my question is, you know, from a psychological or even meta metaphysical or psychological standpoint, like what difference does that effectuate um, by instead of having a God, let's say, or having a, a form of man, like what does it mean now that we just have an object that's lost? Yeah, I, I'd like to mention something about that, which is that um, if you look at the Jungian concept of archetype and the Plato's concept of the idea, you know, it seems to me that they're opposites of each other. Yeah. And so, and so the, the, the way they're opposites of each other is that the archetypes are kind of like an addition of all of the possible, say, fathers, mm -hmm. um, uh, at the level of exemplar. In other words, they're not abstractly, you know, you haven't abstracted over them. You have all of the exemplars there mm -hmm. um, in the archetype. Whereas in the idea, you have abstracted over that set and kind of produced an essence that um, summarizes the properties of the father and uh, as an overarching. Um, uh, abstraction or idea. Yeah. And, and, and I'll say, I, I mean, my, my question was, was part, um, genuine in the sense that there's, there's still a way in which I'm working on articulating this difference for myself, which I think you did a, did a great job of there, Ken. Uh, but also <clears throat> it's part rhetorical in the sense that there's a way in which the lost object in or the transcendent object in psychoanalysis is peculiar to uh, life under capitalism. And I think this is one of the, the directions that they're going to take us is how is this formulation in particular a way of conditioning the individual and conditioning the family as a locus of production under capitalism? Just, well, just kind of thinking well, for, yeah. I just like to mention that you know. So I, I con, I just contrast the archetype and the idea. Right. But, but, but what we're talking about here is something more sophisticated. That exactly, and that's what I'm, I'm trying to point out. It's like, wow, okay, this, this, like the form of the methodology, you know, the, the metaphysics involved. There, there's a sort of formalism there. That's, that's the same between Plato. Carl Jung, uh, Freud, and Lacan. And what is it about the, the sort of Freudian conception here that, that is so peculiar? And, what, um, and how do those differences play out in political terms, broadly, broadly speaking? 
and, and I, I just wanna, sort of, yeah i just wanted to like I, I, i'll be reducing this but in my mind that's been running through this whole chapter has been the idea of a school of fish swimming i don't okay. know if that so i feel like i, I know this is going to be a very like strained metaphor but at the same I'm trying to see if this thought that's recurring within me has any congruence to this concept where the idea that the peculiar Freudian psychology is that it's, it's a sense of lack that then defines your relationship with the big other. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right? I think, yeah, maybe you want to say more about that before I respond to it. So so when one is trying to incorporate oneself in a sense that we then are then flowing within that system of a school of fish, that's my like that's the strange metaphor here. The way we incorporate ourselves in that situation is through that systemized version of a lack built upon that idea that it's a reactionary force that is that is that I'm trying to grasp is that ingraining something that's habituated mm -hmm. through the forces that are there externally or is it innately there right mm. so like if for instance capitalism wants us to be blooming one another in a, in a congruent way right we're all we're all determined by a role within that school of fish mentality. Are we then, are we, is what is that, is what is being pulled to then act in that way innately involved, or is it something that's externally imposed upon us? Yeah. So, okay. So I think this family of metaphysical theories that, that we're talking about, you know, we have Plato over here. We were talking about Plotinus. We're talking about Freud, Jung, and Lacan. There's a way in which all of these uh, ways of thinking about the individual fall firmly into this one way of doing metaphysics, right? And what do all of them miss? Well, they, they miss the, the notion of collective fantasy, right? As, as being the producer of desire, okay? And so from here, um, one of the things that interests me is like how, like, what is it that psychoanalysis is doing? Freud and, and Lacan in particular, uh, under our microscope, what is, what is it that they are doing that um, uh, motivates the kind of atomization, the kind of individuation that experience that is experienced under capitalism? And I mean, this is sort of projecting forward, but this notion of Oedipus that we see here in Freud, it has an evolution to it, right? And we're going to see and, this evolution. Uh, yeah, in, in various forms. Oh, go ahead. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it an evolution, but um, those in Gattari, as we uh, have previously discussed, I think, take this notion of Oedipus that it plays from Freud and maybe incorporated in the broader reductionist castration complex, you know, kind of setting, which gives the Oedipalization a, a much broader, you know, perspective and uh, which makes the use of the Oedipus a much broader signification, right? Mm. I, I want to make an argument for, for calling it an evolution. Maybe it's better to say historical evolution or at least a historical progression. Right, based historical. On, 
Yeah, based on the way um, the incest taboo ha has been reconfigured under various forms of society, because what what what's happening here is a form of incest taboo, um, although that hasn't been elaborated yet on the page, but it's coming. Right. That's exactly that's exactly like what you're pinpointing is this creation of a force, right? But that force contains itself. That's that's inarticulated yet. I, 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 or at least to me, it's inarticulated, but the effect is still there, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, uh, and I think, I, I mean, one of the ways that when I was approaching this material for the first time is um, that that sort of brought me back to the the essence of what they're saying is there's a way in which the notion of lack is deployed. And experienced very directly by wanting something that you just can't have, right? I mean, we all have something that we want that we can't have. Um, and the question is, how how is that that wanting or that that supposed need or that sense of lack produced in some sense? And what the Lozengatari are claiming is, well, there's a very specific way that that's done. And we're building up to that. Isn't there something a little worse, though, with like Lacanian psychoanalysis, where it's not even things you can't have, it's anything you don't have is a part of yourself that, you know, your like desire is something inside of you that isn't you. Uh... Yeah, I, I think that's kind of what they're, well, that, that is what they're critiquing, the, the Lacanian notion that all desire is this gap between, um, between you and the object of your desire. You know, that the Lacanian, the, you know, inherent gap, which is there in Lacan, it is much more primordial. It's not only the the surface relation of us towards the, let's say, object to our desire, if we want to put it this way, but I think uh, Lacan would, would, would disagree with even this conception. But there is a gap, you know, even deeper primordially, ontologically, within the, the Bard subject, Right, which, which operates in a way that it, you know, inherently gaps every everything the, the subject does. So, so see, see, see this... that's Andrew, you're making you're exactly you broke up innately. Yeah. Sorry, is that lack innate? If when you say it's primordial, are you then implying that that lack is innate in the in, in the Lacanian sense? For Lacan, yes, and this is the the biggest point of contention I feel between the work Deleuze and Gattari put in anti oedipus and between Lacan. Okay, and 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 this is why um, they have this strange notion of desire, where you do not desire for an object; you desire an object as a process of production. Um, it's, it's, it's not yearning and reaching towards something pre-exists for Deleuze and Guattari, and that's what permits them to avoid this conclusion that all desire suffers this gap. Right, and this also goes, this was also proven for Deleuze and Guattari when they disallow the usage of the primordial totality, when they say that there is no inherent, you know, primordial totality, and uh, that there is no totality to which we are going, right? The latter being, you know, the, this, as you say, uh, eternal yearning for a kind of desire or whatever.
Right. And and maybe it's important mm-hmm. to point out at this point that they have a, a positive alternative uh, for us to think about, you know, where where we might be thinking about primordial totalities. We can think about the body without organs. I mean, there's just desiring production. We're always just caught in the middle of it. Here we are on planet Earth right now. Um, how is desiring production playing out? Well, things that are organized are tending towards their disorganization. And there is a sphere, uh, there is a, um, a productive milieu that all these things exist in that condition their disjunctions. So, mm-hmm. and I think that's, that's always the important thing to bring back because when people are arguing, uh, okay, well, how do, do Liz and Gatari, like, well, how do, how do we make sense of lack? I mean, of, of course they're telling us how it's, how it's brought into the world, but what's their, what's their alternative take? And then you just say, oh, it's the body without organs. Checkmate. So maybe we can um, go on now? Sure. Uh, uh, we... Go ahead. Right. We have not finished chanting the litany of the ignorances of the unconscious. It knows nothing of castration or Oedipus, just as it knows nothing of parents, gods, the law, lack. The women's, lib- the women's liberation movements are correct in saying, we're not castrated, so you get fucked. And far from being able to get with, get by with anything like the wretched maneuver where men answer that this itself is proof that women are castrated, or even console women by saying that men are castrated too, all the while, all the while rejoicing that they're castrated the other way on the side that is not superimposable. It should be recognized that women's liberation movements contain in a more or less ambiguous state what belongs to all re- what, be- what belongs to all requirements of liberation, the force of the unconscious itself, the investment by desire of the social field, the disinvestment of repressive structures. Nor are we going to say that the question is not of knowing if women are castrated, but only if the unconscious believes it, quote unquote, since all the ambiguity lies there. What does belief applied to the unconscious signify? What is an unconscious that no longer does anything but, quote-unquote, believe, rather than produce? What are the operations, the artifices that inject the unconscious with beliefs that are not even irrational, but on the contrary, only too reasonable and consistent with the established order? And this is so interesting, but I, but I think that they dropped the notion of belief and then revisited later in the one of the later one of the later sections uh, titled the recapitulation of the three synthesis syntheses right yeah. i i think the the interesting thing about this particular paragraph is the the notion uh i mean there's some humor here to be to be reckoned with and mm-hmm. uh, one of the things that they're trying to to highlight in their use of humor here is the way that men uh, will try to console a woman by saying, hey, we, we're castrated too. One of the things that, that allows for the continuation of the castration, uh, uh, the, the, the one being subordinated to castration, is this internal uh, configuration of dominant and subordinate underneath the signifier of castration so that those who are in this subordinate category create or the subordinate series created by the transcendent signifier should they ever complain about their position the, those in the dominant position can say 
we are too um, uh, suppressed by this. But it that but it's okay. yeah, but it's okay. And and this this complaint or this consolation is made in such a way as if to reinstall or or continue to reinstitute the notion of castration as as the transcendent signifier. This is a huge problem, I think, that they identify here as a kind of assimilation or a kind of majority versus minority that the edipalization has achieved, right? That edipalization through this long history of mistake, as they call it, has managed to integrate in society and in these, you know, quote-unquote castrated individuals that some of them and, and most of them don't even try to, you know, the neurotics don't even try to to fight against this, but rather, you know, try, try to integrate even more people, even the psychotics, even the, the schizophrenics, even right into their uh, content with castration, you know, circle. Mm-hmm. I mean, there there are some tendencies, I think, in in liberation movements that. Um, that relate to to what's happening here, and I, I mean, I hesitate to put a fine point on it, but I mean, when people talk about the uh, the politics of microfascisms of 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 groups, like I think about Wendy Brown again in in her essay "States of in, uh, Injury," in the way that revolutionary groups or liberatory groups will attempt to fight against the the systems of of repression but do so by attacking the oppressor on the ground that they have created and by doing so um you know inadvertently reinstalling all of the power structures in right. inside of the liberatory apparatus that they've created mm-hmm. and i think this is one of the the main problems with the paralogisms of desire right? uh, psychoanalysis that they will identify later in the chapter, right? The way that uh, Oedipus produces and then plays the game, right? That's right. It, it even set the rule. It sets the rules and then later uses these rules against somebody else. Mm-hmm. One of the things I think of when I read this paragraph is the casuistry. You know, the the idea that you know you're you're. Uh, you're you're coming up with rationales for the system as it exists, and all the energy goes into that, rather than say you know the revolutionary who's going to try to change the way things are, rather than just justifying the way things are. Mm-hmm. There's a very specific um, piece of literature that I'm thinking about in relation to this paragraph. It's online. There was an abortive attempt made to analyze the case of Rachel Dolezal. Uh, if you remember her, she was the um, person who identified as black but was born white, um, who represented the NAACP in California. And there was a, an attempt to make a defense of her on the basis of uh, Deleuzean metaphysics, Deleuzean politics. And uh, it's interesting because I think there is a way in which we can talk about critical race theory, like through the lens of just this paragraph here. Um, Mm -hmm. But I mean, that like in terms of like, hey, how can we use this? You know, how can we use Deleuze to to uh, inform our our um, creation of liberatory movements or inform our analysis of race and things like that? They're like 
there, like I said, there has been an abortive attempt made there. Somebody's interesting in writing a paper. That's the paper that I want to see, but I, I don't know if I'm uh, going to, to make an attempt at writing it. So I'm just kind of putting that out there. Um, in any case. Right. What, what uh, was the broad outline of how that attempt went, played out and how it relates to us in the um, paragraph here? I think, you know, they were, if I remember correctly, they wanted to, I, I mean, here's what I imagine. They're, 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 the person wanted to talk about blackness, I think, in terms of partial objects, right, rather than the global person of, you know, the instantiations of blackness from the perspective of global persons. But um, the, the essay just kind of uh, went off on this tangent. And I was like, oh, I, I want to see what happens there. But it just never, it never really manifested. I'll try to hunt that down later. So, yeah, Craig, do you feel okay. like reading? Sure. I'll continue. Yeah. Uh, let us return to the fantasy. Uh, uh, wait, is that right? Yeah. Let us return to the fantasy. A child is being beaten. Children are, be are beaten. A typical group fantasy where desire invests the social field and its repressive forms. If there is a mise-en-scene, it is directed by a social desiring machine whose product should not be considered abstractly, separating the girls' and the boys' cases as if each were a little ego taking up its own business with daddy and mommy. On the contrary, we should consider the complementary ensemble made up of boy-girl and parents' agents of production and anti-production. This ensemble being present at the same time in each individual and in the socius that presides over the organization of group fantasy, uh, simultaneously, the boys are beaten, initiated by the teacher on the little girl's erotic stage, seeing machine, and obtain satisfaction in a masochistic fantasy involving the mother, anal machine. The result is that the boys are able to see only by becoming little girls, and the girls cannot experience the pleasure of punishment except by becoming boys. It is a whole chorus of montage. Back in the village after a raid in Vietnam, the presence of their weeping sisters, the filthy marines are beaten by their instructor on whose knees the mommy is seated, and they have orgasms for having been so evil, for having tortured so well. It's so bad, but also so good. Wow. Yeah. yeah wow. <laughs> There's just like a lot in here. Um, right. That... And I feel that... Um between the the first kind of you know discussion of psychoanalysis being pious and the next one we will have about the group fantasies and going in depth they're just trying to be more playful and kind of playing down the the whole section yeah but again yeah oh no, oh continue uh, and then i'll no, no, sorry you, you go uh, yeah i i think the thing that i'm interested in here most is in the sentence, on the contrary, we should consider the complementary ensemble made up of boy-girl and parents' agents of production and anti-production. Um, this ensemble being present at the same time in each individual and in the socius that presides over the organization of the group fantasy. So one of the things that Deleuze and Gattari are trying to say are that these distinct series are operative in uh, various multiplicities, um, one multiplicity being the individual, and another one being the socius, and probably in institutions as well, that any sort of bifurcation brought about by the transcendent signifier is operative in, in every node of that, um, that productive edifice. 
Did anyone else want to get in there? Maybe we'll continue. Andrew, do you want to take that next part? And maybe this will be the last paragraph that we read. Right. Uh, yeah, I think that it should. So, I mean, it should be the last. Perhaps one will recall a sequence from the film Hearts and Minds. We see Colonel Patton, the general's son, saying that his guys are great, that they love their mothers, their fathers, and their country, that they cried religious services for their dead bodies, fine boys. Then, they, then the colonel's face changes. Grimaces and reveals a big paranoiac in uniform who shouts in conclusion. But still, they're a bloody good bunch of killers. It's obvious that when traditional psychoanalysis explains that the instructor is the father, and that the colonel too is the father, and that the mother is nonetheless the father too, it reduces all desire to a familial determination that no longer has anything to do with social feeling actually invested by the libido. Of course, there is always something from the father or the mother that is taken up by the signifying chain. Daddy's mustache, the mother's raised arm, but it comes furtively to occupy a place among the collective agents. The terms of edifice do not form a triangle, but exist shattered into all corners of the social field. The mother on the instructor's knees, the father next to the colonel. The colonel, group fantasy is plugged into and machined onto the socius, being fucked by the socius, Wanting to be fucked by the socials does not derive from the father and the mother, even though the father and mother have their roles there as subordinate agents of transmissions or execution. Uh, again, I think I see a common pattern here that they have, uh, that they have established with Melanie Klein's analysis of Dick with the trains and, you know, mommy train, dark mommy train, etc., with uh, the way this reading you know goes on here with the colonel and with the marines but um what was interesting as a side note this film as i mentioned today to some of you guys this film hearts and minds uh, was uh, you know filmed in 1974 and you know the book rather the film that is really referenced in the in the, the French original, it is some other totally different film from 1968 or 9. But, but, but the, the thing is the same, right? The Vietnam War, etc. Oh, and, and what, um, what do we get by looking at the differences between those two films? Uh, I'm not sure. I didn't really... <laughs> okay. <laughs> I didn't really investigate, but the, the, French, the French-Vietnamese film that they reference is a kind of documentary. Okay. Whereas maybe those hearts and minds is a kind of an adaptation. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. It was just a kind of fun fact. Yeah. Um, maybe what we'll do um, just to finish finish up for today is I, I'd like to work this particular paragraph back from the, the the final sentence. This is one of the ways that I've been doing it. So it says group fantasy is plugged into the machine, uh, plugged into and machined on the socius. Being fucked by the socius, wanting to be fucked by the socius, does not derive from the father and mother even though the father and mother have their roles there as subordinate agents of transmission or execution. So they're making a claim about um, what it is the socius does. I mean, and of course, there's some of Deleuze and Gattari's unique brand of humor here. Um, but there's a way in which the organization of desire on the socius happens in virtue of these figures of fathers and mothers 
Um, they're deplor- but the thing is, ultimately, they are not truly the the conditioning agents. Um, I mean, there's there's a, an extent to which that the father and mother, as they say, do have their roles as subordinate agents. Uh, they're the ones who sort of execute these um, the uh, the processes of of domination and social conditioning, but ultimately are not um, the the things that institute it. They're they're saying that that this happens at the level of a group fantasy, not a, an, an individual fantasy. Right, and maybe I'm reading too much into this, but again, um, I, I can't help to see Lacan in, in this uh, verb they use, right? Fucked, right? Yeah. Because Lacan talks in, the, in a very similar way about desire and the symbolic, and how the symbolic, you know, fucks the subject right from, from the from the very beginning. Right, I, and I, I think the the other important sentence, actually, I missed it. It's right before, is that the terms of Oed- Oedipus do not form a triangle. So here, this is the classical conception of Freud, but for Deleuze and Gattari, exists shattered into all corners of the social field, right? Mm-hmm. So um, the notion of, of Oedipus, like when we encounter it, we, we encounter it as in individuals in the psychoanalytic space. Um, our, our knowledge and experience of Oedipus happens in virtue of our interactions with the psychoanalyst and our belief as individuals in Oedipus. However, it plays out as a group fantasy. It's happening everywhere. So the figure of Oedipus, like they they use the word fragments here. There's a dispersion of this notion of Oedipus throughout the social field. We're going to find it in all of its institutions, right? We're going to find it in the dynamics of, of the military. We're going to find it in the sort of conditioning that happens at the level of protecting society um, and enclosing the borders of a city, like Kent talked about earlier. And to me, this this is what stands out the most. The there there there's sort of stylistic choices here. I think are a little bit of a hurdle to understanding, or at least um, the sort of interpretation that I'm pulling from it. But I kind of feel like I'm missing something too when I look at this paragraph. And maybe uh, I need to take a look at this film, Hearts and Minds. <laughs> so I just like to mention this sentence. Um, the the you know the. Uh, about the boys becoming girls and the girls becoming boys. Mm-hmm. And then it says the whole chorus, a montage. And then they do a montage edit to go into Vietnam and the film. But um, this is... So, this... Sorry, uh, what did they do? Like he said, they show different scenes one after another, just flashes from each scene. In other words, right, they, this is part of montage, you know... Uh, Deleuze goes over this a lot in his cinema series. Part of montage is skipping from image to image. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so right after they say it's a whole chorus, a montage, then they go into doing a montage and refer to the film. But, um, but, but I'd like to draw uh, um, attention to this, uh, the whole chorus. Mm-hmm. So uh, in... Uh, traditional Greek theater, you know, there's the main characters, which can be one, two, or three, but there's always the chorus. And and within the chorus, there's always the leader of the chorus. And it used to be that the leader of the chorus was the producer of the, um, of the play. 
So the person paying for the play to be produced would a lot in very early Greek uh, theater become the producer. And uh, but the but the position of the uh, the leader of the chorus is a lot like Dasein, and the difference between Dasein and the subject uh, in Heidegger uh, being in time is a lot like the relationship between the characters in the in the uh, in the play and the is like the king and the queen and so forth. And the uh, and 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 the leader of the chorus and and what's interesting about the leader of the chorus is that he plays multiple roles. Whenever they need another role that is not in the um, uh, among the main characters, then the leader of the chorus plays that role. But but a lot of the time, the leader of the chorus is just one among the chorus, and they're all talking in unison, and they're usually. Uh, reacting to the scene that's happening as if the audience would react to it. So there's that's an interesting. In, so there's an interesting structure to Greek, uh, uh, you know, Greek plays, and a lot of in a lot of ways, the uh, Deleuze and Guattari want to return to the whole chorus rather than the leader of the chorus, Dasein. They want to talk about the multiplicity of the chorus itself. Yeah, I think one way to do that is to like see the the leader of the producer is just you know this one organ of the chorus, which is kind of coming back and connecting things up the way you're describing and playing these different roles. Yeah, so it's it's just very interesting that a lot of these things that they're talking about, uh, you know, with respect to modern things, as if there was no history to it. When you when you when you go back, you see that there's this deep history into the Western worldview of these concepts that they're talking about. Mm. And of course, Oedipus is the king, right? So he's one of the characters. Mm. He's not right. the he's not the leader of the of the chorus or one of the chorus members. Yeah. Um, well, we're going to start wrapping this up, actually. So uh, maybe just get some final comments in before we cut things off. So if you have a question and you want to chime in by pushing talk, please do so. Type it in the chat. We want to hear people who haven't spoken. And maybe there's just a burning question out there. Um, I've just been staring at this paragraph as as Ken has been talking. Not to say that I wasn't listening to you, Ken. I certainly was. But um, uh, I want to, uh, I'm looking at the the whole Colonel Patton image here. And it's interesting that the in the the image of Colonel Patton that we see is he's basically attempting to enunciate that, hey, like, look at this series, this whole group of people I have back here, loving mothers and fathers, people who love their country, what have you. Um, they're killing machines, right? And there's this uh, disparity between the image that he's trying to project of these things uh, of these these folks. But at the same time, they have this other function that's real, that's happening in the social field, to which this um, correspondence with the mother, the father, and the love of the country somewhat renders absurd. And I, I think it's important to, to note why they've included this example here, is because there's a way in which this reduction to the, the figure of the, the father that happens in psychoanalysis is an absurdity, and it's it's an occlusion of 
how the, the social field operates and all of its dynamics. And that's one of the reasons that we do it. This is one of the reasons that psychoanalysis works. It happens because it fosters this kind of illusion. And um, I mean, I'm just thinking about the way that the notion of family and the notion of patriotism, for example, as it's used here in the United States, often masks the atrocities committed by the United States, right? Uh, I think there's a direct analog between their example that they use here and, and the way that Oedipus in its current iteration here in the United States actually functions. And Do you remember when uh, John McCain was suddenly remembered as a good husband and father? Exactly. Perfect. Exactly. Um, and even, uh, I mean, just be on the watch right now for the, the Democratic Party to resuscitate the, um, the Obama family and maybe even the choice of Michelle Obama as the vice president, right? This this notion of a family just always kind of hovering around representative figures and um, uh, parliamentary politics, I, I think is very interesting to me. I mean, on the conservative side uh, in the United States, it happens with family values, right? And one of the un unique things on the other conservative side, that is of the liberals and the Democratic Party, we have the image of a progressive family in the Obama family, just sort of hovering around the sphere right now and may be actually working themselves back into the seat of power. But um, the question remains is, how is it that the family, the idea of the family, um, you know, obscures or occludes our, our view to um, the nature of social production? Right. Sorry, that was kind of- excited to read angles and find that out. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Are we breaking off because we... Oh, there, there's a question in the chat. Just yeah, wanted... there's a question for Kent, I think. Okay. Yeah, do you see that, Kent? There, no, there? It says, just wanted to clarify... Yeah. yeah, just wanted to clarify if you mean that Deleuze and Gattari are reproducing the Dasein in their narrative structure for this portion, or are they asserting that participants in the montage act as the da Dasein does? Uh, no, I'm not saying that. I, I so so the, 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 you know Deleuze and Guattari are saying that the chorus is the subject, right? But if you want to relate it back to, for instance, what Heidegger's okay. So basically, Husserl, um, you know, the subject and object was a duality, and it caused a lot of problems in phenomenology. Heidegger tried to solve those problems by coming up with the idea of Dasein, which was something prior to the uh, split between subject and object. And, and Deleuze, uh, Deleuze and Guattari are going even deeper by saying, no, no, it's the multiple that is the subject. And, uh, and, and the, group, the group fantasy is uh, you know, what, what we have to deal with here, not, the, uh, uh, not Dasein. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And once again, to reiterate, uh, there is no individual fantasy. I mean, to me, this just links right back up with the schizophrenia, uh, you know, concept from the first chapter. So can you say more about that, Doug? Um, the kind of trying to get into the delirium of the uh, non-individual uh, experience of being right <clears throat> right i think um yeah trying to just draw that out and get you to think about that 
But you don't have to. I mean, one way to think about it is that, uh, you know, the game where you uh, people are in a circle and you one person whispers a secret and then it goes around the circle and then you see what what comes out the other side. Mm-hmm. You know, all of those differences that are put in by the different people that it's going through as it goes through the crowd. Um, uh, you know, th- those are like the associations, you know, all of the different strange things that you might associate um, in, you know, that's a basic technique in psychoanalysis is association. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the schizophrenia is just saying this freewheeling association is the basic uh, human condition. And probably not just human, right? They're probably yeah. That, that's a, that's 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 a good point. Uh, that's the condition of desire. Well, and then and then their point is that it's something prior to the split between humans and nature. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's important too uh, to make a distinction, like be, for Deleuze and Gattari, and maybe not necessarily the case for Lacan. There is a way in which we can approximate the real quote-unquote, in the sense that there are lines of flight away from the individual that occur through the multiplicity of group fantasy, that we can get closer to the situation of desire. Um, this, this can happen in revolutionary groups that have not interjected the individual fantasy back into them. And uh, hopefully that's something we talk about, revolutionary groups, death drive, and, and or the death instinct. Um, and the way that Gattari reformulates that as a way to reinstall the the subjected group fantasy. I think we definitely should write because we're going to start talking about Laborde pretty soon in the next. Yeah, uh, it's coming. It's like the next, the next paragraph. paragraph I think. Yeah. So yeah. So with that said, let's let's finish up right now. Um, yeah, and uh, just before we break off, try to cut you off, Craig. As always, um, we'll be doing a recap of this section tomorrow. It will be in Kent, probably Doug there as well, and uh, some of the other admins. So, yeah, as always, um, this is a call for questions. Anything left unanswered in this first part of the the chapter, uh, this first part of the section, we would like to discuss and go over some of the things again. So, yeah. Yeah, sure. And um, I'm going to go eat lunch after this, but I might pop back on into a discussion group if just people want to randomly ask questions, like they didn't feel like this is the time or they want to sit with it for a little bit. And uh, maybe I'll pop back on for 30 minutes or so. And if anybody else wants to hop in, be my guest. And uh, Brooks told me to tell you that um, he couldn't join us because he had some other commitments that he was working on. Uh, But once again, wanted to thank everybody for showing up. Uh, Always a good showing here. Um, And I always have fun doing what we do here. And uh, keep a lookout for the Patreon. We're going to release it soon and uh, help us cover some of the costs that we're incurring from keeping this thing running. Okay. Okay, thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Afshin. Thanks, Mal. And anybody else who uh, helped out with us today. Right. See you.